Welcome to this episode of Horrific History and Hauntings. I'm Beth. And I'm Ramey. We're your hosts, here to talk about the stories that the history books ignore. From horrific epidemics and ghostly hauntings to the catastrophes and tragic events that have sickened humanity. Yes. What happened today in history, Beth? November 23rd, 1859, Billy the Kid was born. At 21 years old, he was shot and killed. He remained a kid. Yep. Uh... (laughs) It's said that he killed at least nine people in the American West. He called himself William H. Bonney. Originally, his name was probably Henry McCarty. Bonney was his mother's maiden name, and William was the first name of his mother's companion, who eventually she ended up marrying. But he acted as Billy's father because Billy's biological father vanished. Sounds a little convoluted. He went to get the milk and cigarettes. Today's scratchers. Yeah. In 1876, it said that's when he killed his first victims. It was a group of Indians, and I'm not going to try to say the group name because I know I'll get it wrong. A-P-A-C-H-E. Apache? Maybe. It's Apache, Beth. Oh, never heard of it. You never heard of the Apache? Nope. You have. Well, then I don't remember. (laughs) Where did I hear that? Any history class we've ever taken. Uh, Western. I think that's all they ever talk about is the Apache. I don't really care that much about the western stuff but there wasn't that many options for today's history i mean okay okay. it was either this or some bird man got a bit of fresh air from alcatraz okay okay so i chose this one yeah this is a lot more interesting yeah some bird man (laughs) harvey harvey Birdman. visitors would send him birds oh canaries and he lived with them for like 15 years and then the prison made him give him up and so he wrote a book and then the publisher didn't give him his cut and he got depressed tried to commit suicide got sent to alcatraz when he complained about it and yeah that's terrible yeah those people are terrible to bird men mm-hmm. not long after he killed a blacksmith in camp grant arizona it must have been a fever it took him <laughs> he began working as a bodyguard and a rancher for an english-born rancher named john tunstall in 1878 a rival cattle gang killed Tunstall. So Billy became a leader of a group of vigilantes Vigilantes, after his murder. And Billy's group shot and killed two of the murderers, which caused this little feud to escalate into a lot of bloodshed. And I think the word used was warfare. Okay. I think it's a feud. Yeah. July 1878, the rival gang who had at this point, began to work with the authorities to try to get rid of Billy and his gang. This was after Billy's group shot and killed Lincoln, Sheriff Billy Brady. Okay. (laughs) That's an easy one to remember. Who had sanctioned Tunstall's murder. They surrounded the house that Billy and his group was staying in. Did you say a sheriff sanctioned a murder? Yeah. That's a little corrupt. Mm -hmm. Is it because he was British? Uh, It said rival cattle rancher so oh. i'm guessing that he was probably in on the cattle thing and it was all my uh, just, money just type my thing. money my cows yeah. ain't no crime if you're dead yeah these are my cows now yeah he's like, i'm a man of law that's what i'm assuming <laughs> i know cattle rustling is a guaranteed hanging murder isn't <laughs> i want those cows one way or the other well this went on for about five days and the u.s army from nearby fort stanton was called to help as well Whose side did they pick, I wonder? Not Billy's. Oh, no. It's the only reason he got infamous, because he was the losing one. (laughs) Billy and many of the other regulators managed to shoot their way out of the town and escaped. 
they were on the run for a little over two years, and he was eventually arrested by an old friend of his called Garrett. He was friends with him before he became a sheriff hmm. or a law enforcer, I guess. April 1881, Billy was found guilty of the murder of Sheriff Brady and was sentenced to death by hanging on April 28th, which was two weeks before his execution was scheduled to take place. He managed to snatch a gun from one of the jailers, and he shot and killed him and another deputy in an attempt to escape, obviously. Yeah. On the night of July 14th, 1881, Garrett found Billy at a ranch near Fort Sumner, New Mexico. Garrett received access to the house Billy was visiting and surprised him in the dark. Garrett shot Billy in the chest, and that's when he killed him at the age of 21. That kid's life was all over the place. Yeah. Okay. What are we actually talking about today, then? Tuberculosis, Waverly Hills Sanatorium, and New England Vampires. They're all connected. Yeah, that's why I chose to do them all together. You know, I knew a guy who used to think New England was a state. Really? Yeah, I worked with him. and He lived a few. Oh. <laughs> Some interesting facts about tuberculosis. Tuberculosis, TB, the wasting disease. It's a very fashionable thing to have in the Victorian era. Yes, it was. Some other names for TB was consumption, mm-hmm. white plague, phthisis, romantic disease, yep. and that was due to creative and literary figures of the 19th and 20th centuries. They used it as inspiration, and sometimes the impact on the human body was romanticized. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so sexy when you cough up that blood, baby. Listen to the TV episode <laughs> of Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine, because <laughs> it goes into a lot of this. It was very popular to sit around and be a dainty, skinny woman in her nice dress, holding her little handkerchief up to her mouth and coughing, you know, daintily into it. Even now you see it, like in TV, in old-fashioned style, stuff that's made now but made to look old, you see TB. Penny Dreadful, TB's a thing in it. Uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, TB, big deal in the game. As you said, it's been around for a long time, a very long time. It may have been the first illness recognized by humans. Yeah, and you get real pale and cough up blood. Yeah. It was found in the bones from the Neolithic period. You did. Yay me, where's my star? It can affect different kinds of animals as well and can be transmitted between different species. We actually used to think that TB came from animals, but it was found that it started in humans about 40,000 years ago. Hmm. Long time. Mm-hmm. It would also cause lymph nodes to swell. Boobos? Which makes me think of the boobos because... Traditionally, it was treated by cutting them and applying a mixture that contained ingredients such as fruit, honey, salt, animal blood, and insect blood. I've never seen insect blood. I think it's probably just the guts. It has to be. I'm sure they have it, but this... Uh... The guts and the blood. Because <laughs> how are you going to know? <laughs> I bet it cost a premium to get insect blood back then. Imagine all the roaches they used. You know, that was abundant. Ew. Oh, it's probably rat blood, too. Consumption is also mentioned in the Old Testament in the Bible. You want to hear their treatment, their recommendation? Pray. Well, yeah. It's suggested to stay close to God or avoid straying from God. In general, just be a pious, saintly Mm. character and you won't get sick ever. Yeah. Or if you do get it, you, you strayed from God because you... Had an impure dream or something. Yeah. Yeah. You dreamed Carol next door's grass grew a little bit higher than yours for a change. Yeah. (laughs) During the Inquisition, when many people had tuberculosis and about the time pagans were being targeted and murdered, they thought it was punishment for being evil and straying from God. So only the pagans got it, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They believed a demon dog infected them and was eating their lungs. Uh And coughing up blood was believed to be when the dog barked and meant that it was getting closer to killing that person. Terrible. 
Yeah. It is a terrifying thing to think of and not knowing any different back then. Yeah. It was also in England and France. It was believed that if you were touched by royalty, that you would be cured. The stethoscope was created to assist in treating those with tuberculosis by Rene Lennick. That's a nice name. Yeah. Now we're going to slide over to Waverly Hills Sanatorium because that was originally what I was going to do. Not a, actually a sanatorium. I don't know why they called it that. but um, It's a TV ward. Mm-hmm. But that's what originally I was going to do. And then it was kind of short. And I was like, you know what? We talk about tuberculosis all the time. Why not just go a little more into tuberculosis itself as well? Waverly Hills Sanatorium, located in Louisville, Kentucky. In the 1900s, it had the highest tuberculosis death rate in the United States. Oh. Louisville, Kentucky did. I mean, yeah, the whole place is full of TB patients. (laughs) (laughs) It was attributed to the low-lying geography along the Ohio River, which created an ideal environment for the perfect breeding ground for the tuberculosis bacteria before the area was developed. It was originally Major Thomas H. Hayes' family home. He built a one-room schoolhouse for his kids because there wasn't a school nearby. And he hired Lizzie Lee Harris to be the teacher. She enjoyed Sir Walter Scott's Waverly novels. I know the Wizards of Waverly Place. Yeah, that's what I thought of, too. Because I I don't know what the Waverly novels are, but she enjoyed them. So she asked to name the school Waverly School. And he agreed and liked the name so much that he named the entire property Waverly Hill. It's like naming your gamer tag after an anime character or something. Oh, I see. I would do that when it comes to Inuyasha. In 1910, to combat the widespread disease, a two-story wooden hospital was established on one of the highest hills in southern Jefferson County. This was Waverly Hill. It only had 40 beds at the time, but it was soon realized that this was way too small because it was, as I said, the highest rate of tuberculosis in the United States was there. Mm-hmm. So they needed much bigger hospital. They were already housing over 130 cases of tuberculosis at that point, so officials realized they needed a larger facility in Louisville and began to raise money in an effort to finance the construction. In 1924, a donation of land and $11 million was used to start construction for the new hospital. In 1926, Waverly Hills was opened, and it was considered the most advanced tuberculosis hospital in the country. Still, they knew nothing. Hmm. Nothing whatsoever. Yeah. (laughs) But apparently it was a nice place to die. Yeah. It was the best place for patients hoping to survive tuberculosis. Like I said, most of them still died. The crematoriums worked overtime. Yeah. Actually, I don't think they had a crematorium. Uh, We'll um, go into what they had. (laughs) It's uh, not as nice as a crematorium. Oh. It was believed that the most effective cure for tuberculosis was a nutritious diet, plenty of rest, and exposure to plenty of fresh air. I always remember the air part. Yeah. The records have been lost, but it's estimated that tens of thousands died at Waverly Hospital during the peak of tuberculosis. (laughs) The most successful cure. (laughs) Reports suggest a rate of at least one patient dying per hour. So they had to be falling in there like crazy to keep the place packed. Yeah. Doctors and nurses dedicated their lives volunteering to find a cure for this disease, and many of them actually lived and eventually passed away alongside the patients at Waverly Hills. Yeah, because they... Got tuberculosis. Because they were trying to treat the patients. By today's standards, some of the experiments conducted in their attempts to find a cure seemed pointless. Well, may seem pointless. Or verging on barbaric. Yeah. Ultraviolet light exposure was used in an attempt to slow the spread in the lungs. And this occurred in sunrooms where they used artificial light to replicate the sunlight. Just go sit out here in this nice room for a bit. Take a book. (laughs) 
patients were positioned on the roof or upper floor porches to benefit from mm-hmm. the fresh air and the sunlight as well. Imagine yeah. how many lives a simple, decent type of mask would have saved. Also quarantining. Proper quarantine, yes. Proper, yeah. Sorry. They understood quarantine, but they didn't understand proper quarantine. <laughs> patients were positioned by open windows in both summer and winter due to this fresh air belief. Yeah. And there's pictures showing those that were dying covered in snow because they thought the fresh air was just that good that you should be covered in snow just to get that fresh air. Uh, they were placed outdoors in the cold <laughs> thinking, yeah, these people that are having breathing and lung problems should get covered in snow. The, the pneumonia will be fine. It's better. Several of the treatments were more severe and more bloody. Doctors tried putting balloons in the lungs, then blowing the balloons up to make the lungs expand. Obviously, that went horribly wrong most of the time. Most I'm of the assuming time. all of the time. Yeah, I can't see how that would ever be thought to work. There was also hydrotherapy that they tried. Oh, water. Which led to pneumonia. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the snow did too. Lots of water. Yeah. Hydrotherapy is taking a bath. Thoracoplasty was a very serious surgery where doctors opened the chest removed muscles and up to seven ribs. And the reason they did this was it was thought to help the lungs expand more freely for better breathing. I bet that didn't work. It was only done as a last option because about less than 5% of the patients survived this procedure, clearly. And apparently, from what I read, it's very rarely used today, but it said very rarely, so that means sometimes it is still used. There must be a reason for it. They have to get to certain areas they can't to the ways. I guess. Either that or it's some wacky doctor in another area that we don't know about. Maybe. And then some experiments are still used today, such as pneumothorax. It involves temporarily deflating the affected lung area to aid the healing. So I don't have to work. It just sits still and recovers. Yeah. Man, I always heard having a deflated lung, a collapsed lung is unpleasant. Yeah. Can't imagine someone, oh, no, sit still. We're going to do this on purpose. Then we're going to shove you in the window. (laughs) (laughs) Enjoy the snow. (laughs) Don't let none of that snow get in that wound, though. (laughs) A lot of the times, whole families would reside at Waverly Hills. While some recovered, others had to leave the hospital through the body chute, which was a tunnel connecting the hospital to the railroad tracks at the base of the hill. It featured a mechanical rail and cable system with the deceased placed and lowered on one side of the tunnel, there were steps to go up and down on the other side. Now that you mentioned it, I have heard of this. Yeah. The tunnel part I remember hearing about before. The tunnel in the hospital was heated by a steam plant on the property, and this was also an entrance for maintenance workers who lived off of the property. Just come <laughs> into the body tunnel, please. <laughs> I think I would just not do that. In this era, I wouldn't want to work in a TV hospital. I wouldn't want to work near a hospital. No. I wouldn't want to be near people. I would want to be a hermit when TV is going around. Yeah. Well, kind of like I am now. Mm. I remember when I was doing DoorDash, I would um, look up the address to see where it was going before I would go, obviously, before I would even pick up the food. And if it was a hospital, I would cancel it. I am not going to. Also, it turns out they are very cheap. Yeah, they're they're dying. <laughs> they're poor and hungry and dying. No, like the doctors and <laughs> the employees oh. are cheap. Maybe not all of them. Sorry to any of those was- out there, but. I figured it would have been the patients that was ordering or the family of the patients. It may be. I don't know. I didn't go because it was also during COVID and I'm not going to the hospital. (laughs) This tunnel was completely enclosed, extending from the morgue wing of the hospital. And this was obviously done to prevent all the living patients from seeing the number of bodies that were being tossed into this tunnel. Everybody just assumed that they recovered. (laughs) Yeah. 
Like you wake up in the morning and... It's like a horror film. And Carolyn over there across the hall is very calmly sleeping. <laughs> and they're like, oh, you're doing so much better today. Just talking to her as they wheel her out. You never see her again. Nope. And she's laying there covered in snow and dead. <laughs> uh, this is this is how well you can recover. See this? She's no longer got TB. <laughs> she doesn't have ribs. She doesn't have TB. Oh, and only half a lung. <laughs> In the late 1930s, due to the procedures and experiments conducted at Waverly Hills and other hospitals around the United States, tuberculosis cases began to decline. But it wasn't until 1943 when a young graduate student at Rutgers University, Albert Schwartz, discovered streptomycin, I think is how that's pronounced. This was the groundbreaking medicine that would combat the disease. By the mid-1950s, the antibiotic led to the significant reduction of tuberculosis cases, almost completely getting rid of it, almost. In 1961, Waverly Hills Sanatorium shut down as it was pretty much no longer needed. In 1962, the structures reopened under the name Woodhaven Geriatrics Sanatorium. And <laughs> Geriatrics is pretty much an old folks home, I believe. Yeah. It, it was there to help elderly people. Yes. Relieve them of their ribs. <laughs> Over the years, there have been numerous stories of patient mistreatment and unusual experiments while it was Woodhaven Geriatric Sanatorium. The old folk. They just never changed the staff and all those wacky doctor experimenters were still there. Yeah. Some of these stories have been debunked, but unfortunately some have involved things like electroshock therapy. That always makes your lungs better. Or the elderly old people. people. Yeah, that, your old that, people better. Yeah. The dementia. Mm-hmm. The Alzheimer's. In the 1960s and 1970s, due to budget cuts for these types of facilities, it says mental institutions nationwide face documented cases of horrific conditions and treatments, which is true. But this, they did some mental health care, but it wasn't really what it was for. I mean, they did a little bit of it, so maybe that's why I mentioned that. In the 1980s, Woodhaven was closed by the state of Kentucky. The structures, belongings, and property were auctioned off, and the ownership of the building and land changed in the following 18 years a few times. Mm -hmm. The property's second owner wanted to completely demolish all of the structures to build the world's largest Jesus statue. He succeeded in demolishing everything except for the main hospital, which was spared due to its listing on the National Historic Register. Since he was unable to legally demolish it, he attempted to get the building condemned by orchestrating vandalism. Good Lord. He had these vandals come in and damage pretty much everything. Windows, sinks, toilets. They sprayed graffiti on the walls. Of course. And then, when that didn't work, he dug around the foundation for up to 30 feet deep, trying to get the foundation to crack, which did not work. Apparently, the foundation was great for this place. It it's didn't work. by the spirits of all the dead, <laughs> sad people. By 2001, Waverly Hills was worn down by time, weather, and vandals. And talk about it being haunted began to spread throughout the area because that's... I mean, yeah. yeah it's a haunted... Or, I mean, it's an abandoned hospital. So, lots of people died there. And lots more than normal hospitals, <laughs> even. They also believe that satanic rituals was taking place inside of it. Satanic panic. Because... That's the thing. It's it's all the rage to claim a Satanist is behind it all. Yeah. And stories circulated about a young girl playing hide and seek with intruders and running around the third floor. People have shared their stories and encounters, such as a young boy playing with a leather ball, rooms lighting up even though there's no electricity to the building, doors slamming, disembodied voices, a hearse delivering coffins. That's weird. Considering they were just picking up bodies before. <laughs> and a woman rushing from the front door with bleeding wrists. 
some of the sources said she was also in chains while screaming for help. Uh, that makes no sense to me. <laughs> no. Unless and she's a geriatric woman. The owner didn't get to build his Jesus statue or demolish the building like he wanted, so eventually he sold the property. The founder of the World's Scariest Places TV show, Keith Age, and a few other members of the World's Scariest Places, decided to investigate Waverly Hills Sanatorium. And I want to say Ghost Hunters and another one. I forgot the other I, one. I would almost say any one of them that's made a name in the ghost business has done this. Yeah. I, I, they're not really my kind of TV shows. No, Mama I, likes them. I read the article, so I decided to put the, that in here. They seem like nice people. Mm-hmm. It's not my, my thing. It's just not. I like A Haunting. Yeah. That's the one I like. A little bit more reenacty. Yeah, and actually shows scary stuff. There ain't no orbs. No orbs. <laughs> Specks of dust. <laughs> Moths. <laughs> Reflection. <laughs> Lens flare. <laughs> <laughs> During the time they were exploring the morgue wing, they walked down a dark hallway and the electromagnetic field meter began to click and then it quickly skyrocketed on the scale. Like I said, I haven't watched this, but I read the article. According to Keith, this wasn't supposed to occur because there had been no electricity on the hill since the mid-1980s. And I'm guessing considering the name of the device, it's probably what would affect it. The poles were knocked down and all the wires were removed. He also mentioned that whatever was making the electromagnetic field meter react was moving around instead of staying in one location. The guy downstairs doing the same thing of another meter. (laughs) (laughs) They traced the signal to a compact room containing a box with light bulb sockets in the center of the room. What? The meter maxed out, producing an audible noise, which they claim to have never heard from this device. That resembled glass breaking. The needle remained frozen at the highest position, and according to Keith, the squealing ceased, and the device began to warm up in his hand, and eventually it became so hot that the solder on the circuit board melted and began dripping out of the meter. So he had a shorty product, and what if it ended at a chair or ended at a toilet? This is when he when it started acting up to the point where it couldn't go any farther. <laughs> this is a really upset ghost. <laughs> Uh, what's up with the light things? I don't know what could have caused any of this. I don't know. I would assume it was faulty equipment because I'm a skeptical person. Yeah. But who knows? Well, they went to get another one and they still had things because this one obviously was melting. So they went to get another one. They went back out and came back and the other one, though it didn't melt, it was also... Okay, well, that's more unusual. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't stay in that room. No. I would have had a Geiger counter. <laughs> I said, something's not right here. Is this where they've done the uranium therapy? <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, they so I had to have tried it. Oh. He removed the battery to prevent further damage, and that's when they felt the room getting colder. How dare you turn off their screechy thing? They said it was during the summer and that the temperature outside was 80 degrees, and though this room had very little light and was made of concrete, so it would be cooler than outside they claimed it was much colder than it should have been braver than i'd be it turns out that this room was the electroshock therapy room oh so it's residual energy (laughs) you know lingering electricity (laughs) it explains why there there's light bulbs in the middle because didn't they use light bulbs to show how much voltage i guess you would say is i don't think so i don't know anything about electroshock I don't know anything about how it was done. I know what it is, but. I could be wrong. I want to say I've seen that, though. It might have just been for movies. Well, not seen it, but. It might be a good show for movies. 
He also said they began to hear scratching and scraping sounds later on in a hallway. I don't know if it's the same hallway, but it, a hallway. But this was also about the time that they disturbed a bunch of bats. So maybe that was what they were hearing. Rabies. Yeah. They then went into a room with a big metal door. And this is the part as to they didn't have a crematorium or a cemetery. And it's fun. I find this part to be the interesting part of this. The room had eight poles extending from the floor to the ceiling, and it had a drain on the floor. Yeah. This was the training room. During the time of tuberculosis and the many swift deaths needing the bodies to be removed quickly to make space for the new victims, Jefferson County didn't want the infected bodies being sent down the hill, obviously, to the not-so-infected people. Yeah. So these bodies were sent to the draining room. Like I said, they didn't have a cemetery to bury these people. So they were hung from the poles and then cut from sternum to groin to drain the bodily fluids. Like cattle. Uh-huh. And then these bodies were lowered onto a gurney and then transported down the body chute. Huh. That's bizarre to even do that. Mm-hmm. During the 1930s, due to the decline of tuberculosis, this room was transitioned into a smokehouse for curing on-site raised and slaughtered meat. I wonder if they washed it down. I hope so. I wouldn't have turned it into that, but I hope they at least sanitized it. Yeah. When they were exploring the cafeteria, they heard footsteps and a door closing. They also said they smelled freshly baked bread. Mm. And they searched but found no explanation for these. Occurrences. In 1928, on the fifth floor in room 502, a 29-year-old nurse was found dead. She took her own life by hanging herself due to her depression. It was said that she w- was pregnant and was not married as well. Oh, she decided she to do it was. at work. Yeah, do it on the clock. Why don't you just wait to catch TV? In the middle of the day. In 1932, another nurse who worked in room 502 jumped off the roof balcony. I have TB. She died after hitting the ground several stories below, obviously. You don't say. Uh, The reason for her action is unknown. I have TB. But some people say that, especially if they're pregnant, I don't know why a pregnant person would be in this building, but apparently they say that they feel the urge or like they're getting pushed towards the area that she jumped, the balcony. I wouldn't go up there. I mean, (laughs) it just doesn't seem like a smart decision. When Keith and the other members went into room 502, the EMF meter reacted to something. The temperature also went from 86 degrees to 98. Oh, that's Molly's favorite room. They said that it continued to rise to the point that they had to leave the room. And then the owner was... With them at this time, he just the owner of the building. He decided to go in the room to see what was going on, and then the temperature just dropped to sixty-eight degrees. And they searched the room but found nothing to explain why this happened. Oh, that's a weird one. Usually temperatures. I rise. can see you, and when it was rising, well, I gotta go. Yeah, I wouldn't be heading out. I can't stand the heat. <laughs> as soon as it started to drop to the sixties, is when I would be leaving. If it was hot, I'd be fine. More about tuberculosis. March twenty fourth. 1882, Dr. Robert K-O-C-H, Koch, Dr. Robert Koch found the bacteria that caused tuberculosis. And at this time, TB was taking the lives of one in every seven people in the United States and Europe. His finding was obviously very crucial in the effort to control and eliminate tuberculosis. Uh Joanne Shonelin 
first used the term tuberculosis in 1834. Mycobacterium tuberculosis may have existed for around 3 million years. In ancient times, tuberculosis had names like Thysis in Greece, Tabes in Rome. I don't know how to pronounce this. It's in Hebrew, S-C-H-A-C-H-E-P-H-E-T-A. In the 1700s, it was known as the White Plague due to the patients being so pale. In the 1800s, it was commonly called consumption and the captain of all these men of death. During the Middle Ages, tuberculosis of the neck and lymph nodes was called scrofula. It's like Dracula, but scroll. <laughs> Researchers found signs of tuberculosis coexisting with humans for a long time by studying bones from old human settlements in the eastern Mediterranean. Generic evidence from these studies suggests that around... Genetic. Didn't I say that? You said generic. Oh, oops. Genetic evidence from these studies suggests that around 9,000 years ago, a type of tuberculosis similar to what we have today. They found it preserved in bodies of ancient Egyptians. It's a major cause of death in Europe. It was, not it is, especially among young adults that were 18 to 35. It led to gradual decline marked by weight loss, pale skin, sunken yet bright eyes. In the 1800s, tuberculosis treatments included cod liver oil, vinegar massages, inhaling hemlock or turpentine, drinking dog fat and garlic, Mm. inhaling smoke from burning cow poop, exercising the chest muscles by forcing yourself to vomit. Ludicrous. Obviously, we've mentioned the fresh air many times. And eventually, quarantining, which they did not fully understand how to properly do that. A smart bunch. Yeah. Well, I mean, they did the best they could of what they had. Yeah. Uh, lots of poop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Depending on the stage of the disease, other treatments included things like regular bloodletting, giving expectorants and purgatives. What's an expectorant? Uh, they make you poop and, 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 and vomit. Vomit and laxatives. Yeah. Uh, maintaining a healthy diet. I'd like that one, please. Uh, exercise like horseback riding, which I didn't know that was an exercise. The horses are front. I'm the TB horse. I'm the one everybody goes to give their TB treatment for today. Oh, I wonder if horses can get it because cows can. Well, I'm not sure the horses can. Equine. Oh, that's so sad. TB. And in the final stages, when you're pretty much, you're, you're a goner, there's no hope for you. They gave them opiates. It made everything better. Yeah. In 1904, the number of sanatoriums increased from 115 with an 8,000 patient capacity to 839 with a capacity for 136,000 patients. And they were still overflowing. Yeah. Yeah, so, they were. So they're like, we got to cure them. Get those lungs out of there. And get those ribs out. Oh. <laughs> shove him in the shove window. Shove those balloons in there. <laughs> Take his ribs out and throw him in the window. He'll be right as rain. Oh. <laughs> 1875, Joseph. Gleitzman opened the first U.S. sanatorium in Asheville, North Carolina. What's up with all these being in our area? I don't know. I always thought they were up north where it's colder and clearer air. Hmm. I feel like it was a little bit everywhere, but yeah, we had the highest. We might have had the most population area, so they had to have been more over here when those, of course, got more popularity for being overpacked and terrible. Hmm. Really don't know. In 1884, Edward Trudeau, Trudeau? who had tuberculosis, started the second one, which was A-D-I-R-O-N-D-A-C-K. I don't know. I don't know why people have to have such complicated names. <laughs> why? They have complicated names, but then they decide <laughs> the best way we can cure these people is to rip the ribs out. 
Cottage Sanatorium. Cottage sounds so nice. I don't think sanatorium when I think cottage. This one was in Saranac, New York. In 1894, he built the first tuberculosis research lab in the United States. I would have started with research labs and then the hospitals. So you know how to take care of the people in the hospitals. Yeah. Perhaps nobody's ribs would have been ripped out. And then he later died. Oh, of TB, I bet. Yep. And then hysteria emerged in New England. So we're going into the New England vampire part of this episode. Oh, jolly, jolly. You know, how could I not? They were afraid of vampires. In the 19th century, tuberculosis, known as consumption, led to the deaths of entire families in Rhode Island, Connecticut, Vermont, and other parts of the Northeast. Otherwise known as the great state of New England. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Between 1786 and 1800, when officials started recording deaths, tuberculosis took the lives of 2% of New England's population. That's only 2%. uh, Yeah, but uh, the population that might not have died otherwise for a while. I wonder if that's right or if I made a typo. That's still a large percentage of people. Is it? It's only two. I don't know. I don't know how many people lived in all those states slash great state of New England. I don't know. That's more than just one state if you think about it. (sighs) Idiot. No, I'm saying that's a 2% no. of a wide area. Him. He likes the Patriots. That's what we was talking about when that subject came up. And he thought it was a state. Okay. Consumptives experienced weight loss, coughed up blood, ashen skin, a slow life-draining death. Obviously, I'm going to bring that up a lot or have brought it up a lot. It's described as if something was sucking the life out of them. Yeah. Oxygen. <laughs> In that era, New Englanders acknowledged consumption, but lacked an understanding of how infectious diseases spread. And without the understanding of germs, some people believe that those who died from consumption were preying on their living family members. (laughs) They died, then came back to eat my soul. Yep. Some even describe these supposed New England vampires as a kind of microbe or bacterium with fangs. Of course they did. Which kind of makes me think, they did have an understanding. They Not really, but... They thought it was a spiritual entity. Yeah. A tiny microbe spiritual entity. Yeah. Because they described it as a kind of microbe or bacterium. So you're at least somewhat going in that direction, but you're also turning to the side while going in that direction. He was doing great, <laughs> and then you decided to make a sharp right turn. Yeah. Into a bit of a fancy. <laughs> to prevent attacks from vampires by... They would dig up the dead and perform these rituals. March 1819, March 1892, in Exeter, Rhode Island, at Chestnut Hill Cemetery, members of the community dug up the bodies of Mary Brown and her two daughters, 20-year-old Mary Olive and 19-year-old Mercy Lena. Nice names. Yes. After Mercy Lena died and his son Edwin got sick, George, Mary's husband, Hmm. wanted to save his only family. So he let the townspeople dig up his wife and daughters. After exhuming their bodies, Mary and Mary Olive's body had decayed, but Mercy's was still well preserved. Her hair and nails had looked as if they had grown, which obviously we now know that's a normal thing. And when cut or pierced, she seemed to still bleed. What was the weather outside? I think it was cold. It is New England. Obviously, these signs made the people believe that she was a vampire. Those microbe vampires are here. Yes. A local doctor saw the autopsy and tried to explain to them that the cold weather preserved Mer- Mercy's body, but they obviously were panicking and was not convinced. 
I mean, let them have their fun. Yeah. They're dead. It ain't going to hurt them. They had their fun. They took out Mercy's heart and burned it on a nearby rock. And then supposedly, Edwin ate the ashes of her heart. But this obviously did not help him, and he died a few months later. Wasn't there a vampire hunter here telling him to do all this stuff? There is a something mentioned later on that there was a, a newspaper article or something where, yes, somebody was telling them that this. It, I think they called him a quack doctor, to be exact. Yeah. But I don't know if it was like a vampire hunter, but there was someone influencing them to do this. You he could have started a cult. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing what some panic will do. New England was then known as the Vampire Capital of America. That's New Orleans now. Yeah, Anne Rice. Even before Anne Rice, you it was New Orleans. But apparently New England was the first. The brown digging was just one of among tens, at least, of similar exhumations. Is that how that's pronounced? Yeah. Throughout New England during this time. Bram Stoker probably used these fears to publish his novel Dracula. Never heard of it. Uh huh. <laughs> I like the book, but it ends on a weird note and. Never read it. Oh, it ends on a weird note. Bram Stoker portrayed the vampire as a ghostly presence inhabiting a human body rising from the grave at night to drain the blood of the living. The New England vampires were less mythical but equally frightening to those who believed that they were the problem. They certainly didn't sparkle. No, they did not. They were pale. They did not sparkle. New England vampires were described as a corpse that seemed incompletely decomposed with fresh blood in its heart or vital organs. And when it says fresh, it means still liquid. Because it really isn't fresh at all. Yeah. (laughs) Uh. People thought the spiritual link some suspected vampires had with living relatives let them reach their victims without leaving their graves you become a social (laughs) recluse oh people in new england likely learned to dig up the dead to stop vampires from healers who traveled from eastern europe and germany in 1784 (laughs) (laughs) In 1784, there was a letter with a complaint from a town official in a Connecticut newspaper mentioning a foreign doctor who promoted the idea and convinced a man to dig up their children. That's the one that I want to say they use the term quack doctor. Uh, Yeah, because (laughs) the town mayor's like, listen, Uh, I've got people out here digging up graves, burning (laughs) hearts, cemetery smells like rotting flesh and steak. Okay. <laughs> oh. Michael Bell was a or is if he's still alive, I don't know. A he ain't now. folklorist and author of the book Food of the Dead on the Trail of New England's Vampires. And he's recorded over 80 vampire rituals in New England and continued to find more oh. cases. So there's a lot more than what I'm mentioning. Always a fun time in New England. He thinks that it started about 1784 and went on until about 1892. Depending on what region it was, the rituals were differed from one another. Different quacks for different spaces. Yeah. In Massachusetts and Maine, they just turned the bodies over and left them in some areas. (laughs) Okay, that's much better. Yeah. People would burn the hearts and livers of those they suspected to be vampires in Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Vermont. In 1990s, 
in Griswold, Connecticut, archaeologists found 29 skeletons in a gravel pit previously used as a colonial-era cemetery. This became known as the Jewett City Vampires. The bodies were... The bodies displayed tuberculosis signs and were arranged into skull and crossbone patterns, which I'm wondering if that's where the skull and crossbone thing came from. When people thought they had found the undead, they may have rearranged these bones by decapitating by decapitation and sometimes removing the legs to keep the vampire, supposed vampire, from getting out of the grave. And near the end of the 19th century, the vampire belief began to die down and Robert Koch identified the tuberculosis bacteria and science started to replace the folklore in explaining this disease. That's all I have for tuberculosis and vampires and hospital sanatoriums. Well, we've done a lot today. in the last hour and two minutes. Um, we learned a lot about New England. If you like what you heard here, we have other episodes up and other podcasts. We're part of the Gruesome Gaming Group Network. And we have Brother Knows Quest, a podcast where I tell my sister about tabletop role-playing games. And we have Leveling Duo. It's a podcast me and my friend Dakota do about video games we really enjoyed or are looking forward to coming out. Just video games in general. And we have this one, of course, Perfect History Holdings. In the description below, there will be a Linktree link. In that link, we'll have all of our other social accounts. You could follow us, comment, tell us something you might want to hear about. Uh, the first link you come to in this Linktree will be our website link. It'll take you to all our other podcasts. You can subscribe. If you're willing to donate, there's an option to do it there. Don't feel compelled to. If we do, we'll appreciate it and we'll shout you out if you want us to. Let us know when you do make the donation. We have a YouTube now. Do some streaming on it occasionally. We have a Twitch that isn't getting much attention right now because the audio is always messing up on us. If there is any streaming on Twitch, it will be Beth streaming Sims. They will be on YouTube later, but only as on-demand videos. Like and subscribe. Leave a review if your podcast app lets you. Like I said, all of our stuff is also on YouTube. You can do that there. Leave a comment. Contact us through any of the social links you want to. There's an email specifically for contacting Beth for this podcast in the link tree. Follow the Twitter for any updates. We are trying to keep on schedule, but if something shows up and we can't, it will show up there. So far, we've only missed one episode through the 24 months we've done all this. And it hasn't even been this show. It's been another one. We're doing pretty good. Beth, I thank you again. And thank you for listening. I've been Ramey. And I'm Beth. A goodbye.